Good morning. How are you? I'm good too. Thanks for asking. Well, welcome to Parkview. My name is Casey Tigert. I'm the spiritual formation pastor here, and I'm glad to welcome you. The opening weekend of Major League Baseball, right? Some of you care, some of you don't. Some of us are very excited this weekend, and that's good. And some of us are traditionally disappointed. So you know who you are on each side of that aisle. I will not utter the name that will not be uttered. It's funny to me in this series about Mountain Dew, about important mountains of the Bible, that there are all these stories of people wrapped up in the Bible. The Bible would be very less complicated if it weren't for all the people in it, because these people are real kinds of people. And we hear stories, and and we live by stories. I think we're a story-based kind of folk. We watch television shows because they have a good story to them, because they're written well, because they have characters that we can identify with. But there's also a sense that we want stories that end on a high note, my daughter is into the Disney princess world right now, and that means that so am I, and so pray for me. Um, and she loves these stories of these princesses, but I did some digging, and I found out that not all of the princess stories go like they're written. The original ones are actually very, very different. For example, Cinderella. Um, you know, we kind of feel bad about Cinderella. She's struggling with this stepmother and her stepsisters who seem to want to just destroy her life, and she wears these shabby clothes, and she gets to hang out with mice and sing with animals, which sounds kind of fun, but it's not all that fun. What we find out in the original story that was written about Cinderella is that she actually killed her first stepmother. Did you know this? She did. Because she wanted her dad to marry the housekeeper, who just so happened to be the wicked stepmother. So before we get all bleary-eyed about Cinderella, it's kind of her fault. So there you go. How about the Little Mermaid? This is my daughter's favorite, Ariel. Ariel who trades her mermaid le- fins for legs so she can go on land and explore Prince Eric, the man that she loves. Well, in the original Hans Christian Andersen story, when she takes on this spell, whenever she walks on those feet, it feels like thousands of little knives stabbing the bottoms of her feet. And then, to top it off, Eric marries some other girl once she gets up there. And so she casts herself into the sea and becomes seafoam and floats around for eternity. I mean, could you imagine me telling my daughter these stories and being like, all right, sleep tight. (laughs) We like stories that end with the line that she loves to repeat with me, and they lived happily ever after. We like those stories because that's rarely how life turns out. Am I right? That's rarely the way that we see real stories go. And we like stories with happy endings or we like tragedy stories. That's why people watch Jersey Shore because they feel like it can't get any worse than this. I can't be that bad. This this mountain, Mount Sinai, is wrapped in a story. And it's wrapped in a story of one of the most notable figures in the Bible. And I want to tell you that this story is not necessarily a happily ever after story. It's a very different kind of story. And I want to start with the end and then work our way backwards. In Exodus chapter 19, this is what we see. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. 
Now, you kind of get the sense, if you read this for the first time, that Moses is a person who works with and for God. He's bringing people to meet with God. So obviously, he's in good with God. If Charlton Heston portrays you in a movie, it means you've done something fantastic. And so Moses brings people out to meet with God, and so we kind of assume that he's a God person. He's a God guy. He's one of those people that fits the mold of always doing things right and always making the right decisions and always saying the right things at the right times. But let's rewind, shall we, to the beginning. Moses was born in Egypt at a time when the Egyptian pharaoh was having all the baby boys who were Hebrews killed. He wanted to get rid of every Hebrew person in his kingdom, and the best way to do that is just to take out their next generations. And so Moses' mother gives birth to him and hides him for three months. And when she realizes she can't hide him any longer, she puts him in a basket and throws him in the river. Which seems to make sense. That's a, that's a good motherly thing. That's what you find in what to expect when you're expecting. Tosses the baby in the river, and the Nile is a river filled with alligators and vipers and all sorts of trauma. And somehow Moses survives and finds his way into the care of the daughter of Pharaoh, who takes care of him for some time along with Moses' mom. And it's a very incredible story how they get back together. But then we see in Exodus chapter 2, when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And we've got to understand something. This isn't, just, this isn't just an easy circumstance. This is Moses going to be raised in the house of the man who is killing off everyone who he's supposed to be going to elementary school with. This is Moses being raised in the house of the enemy while his brothers and kinsmen of the Hebrew nation are suffering in slavery. He's eating from Pharaoh's table. He's learning from Pharaoh's teachers. He's in a really sweet spot while the rest of his family, the rest of his kinfolk are suffering. So lesson number one, he begins to be raised in the house of the enemy. And then as he grows up, he sees something happen one day. Exodus chapter 2, 11 says this, He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, looking this way and that. And seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. You've got to understand about this. When it says killed, it doesn't just mean he found a weapon and beat him to death. It means that he went at him with his bare hands. He went MMA style on this Egyptian soldier, killed him with his bare hands, and buried him in the sand because of what he was doing. And then after that, the next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting, and he asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? And the man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? You're not the boss of me. That's in the Hebrew, it's just not there. Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? And Moses was afraid, and he thought, what I did must have become known. So not only is he raised in the house of the enemy of his people, and he lives off their bounty while his relatives suffer, he's also a murderer. He's also a guy who premeditatedly looked this way and that and beat someone to death with his bare hands and then claimed to be an authority to his family. Not the guy, necessarily, that you'd want to be your hero. And so, he wanders out into the wilderness. Now, anytime the Bible talks about wilderness, what they're talking about is a place of utter disconnection, lostness, being in the middle of nowhere and wandering with no connection to anyone, anywhere. And maybe you're at that place in this room where you feel cut off, where you feel like you're in the desert. There is no water, there is no life. Moses wanders into the desert, and there he meets a good-looking girl, which is not the, always the plan. You don't always find good-looking girls in the wilderness, but sometimes it happens, and here's one of those places, Exodus 2.16. Now, a priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs 
to, their water, to water their father's flock. And some shepherds came along and drove them away, those shepherds. But Moses got up and came to their rescue and watered their flock. Because, ladies, nothing says romance like watering your flock. I saw that on a Hallmark card, right? So Moses shows up and goes, I can be your hero, baby. And she says, I, I, will you water my flock? That's the sign. And so he marries this woman, this daughter of the priest of Midian, and they have a child named Gershom. And Gershom means I am a stranger in a foreign land. It's almost worse than a boy named Sue, isn't it? So Moses is a Hebrew raised in the house of the enemy, a murderer who killed a man with his bare hands, a man who's rejected and cut off from all of his people. And now he's married to a woman in a family that he barely knows in a land that's not his own. He's wandering, he's lost. Doesn't it make sense that this would be the moment when God said, I want that guy to do something big. Give me the murderer. Give me the guy who ate well while his relatives and family ate poorly. Give me the guy who's lost and completely cut off. That's the guy that I want. And so what happens is in Exodus 3, Moses is leading the sheep. And he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And on Horeb, the mountain of God, he comes into a fascinatingly powerful encounter. The night is split wide open and the, the hooves of the sheep stop on the mountainside. And all of a sudden, something cracks in on the side of the mountain that gets Moses' attention. In Exodus 3, 2, it says, Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight. Why the bush does not burn up? Because honestly, if it's between hanging out with sheep and checking out a burning shrub, I'm going with the shrub. It seems more interesting than anything else that's happening. There's this bush that bursts into flames and an angel of the Lord speaks to him through this bush. So here he is, cut off from his people, married into a family he doesn't know, in a land that he doesn't know. He's a murderer. He's been living on the fat of his enemy's land and now God encounters him in the middle of nowhere at the most lost point in his life. And so powerful is this encounter that God says, don't come any closer Take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. It's funny to me, this is the first thing that God ever asks Moses to do. Doesn't ask him to change himself, doesn't ask him to change his life. He simply offers him a question. If you come up here, that's fine, but you have to take off your shoes. Now Moses being a shepherd walking around with sheep, sheep are not all that discriminate about where they do their stuff. You know what I mean? I don't have to go any further with that, do I? And so Moses, as he's leading this flock around, has probably stepped in some objectionable business, if you know what I mean. And so his feet are covered with mud and dirt and sheep, and, and, he's, and he looks down at his sandals and he says, look, God hasn't spoken to my people for 430 years, so really if this is God then I probably should lose these. And I wonder if in his head he was also saying, also on these shoes, also in my travels, I've accumulated a lot of baggage from where I grew up and from what I did in my past and from who I am now. I'm carrying a lot of baggage. So maybe I should leave that behind. And so he takes off his sandals 
And from then on, the story changes radically. God says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses thinks to himself, I better worship this God, but you know what? This God knows me. This God knows me. If this is the God that I think he is, he knows everything about me. He knows everything that's in the depths of my soul, everything that I think, everything that I'm feeling, everything that I believe. He knows it all and he can see it all. And that's not a good thing for me right now because he knows that I was a Hebrew raised in the house of my enemy. He knows that I killed a man with my bare hands and buried him in the sand. He knows that I've been rejected by my people. He knows that I've wandered in the wilderness. He knows all those things about me now. Why would he want me? What does he think of me? Great spiritual writer Brendan Manning says that it takes a profound conversion to accept that God is relentlessly tender and compassionate toward us just as we are. So when Moses takes off his shoes, lays them down, and walks into the presence of God and bows down before him, everything changes. The story takes on a different note, and God says, I hear the cry of my people, and I'm sending you to save the nation. And Moses says, right, because I'm that guy. My resume backs up that this is something that I should be eligible to do. The Hebrew raised by the enemy, the murderer, the man cut off from his people, the man wandering in the wilderness, I should be the one for this job. And so he begins to fire back. God has already chosen him. This is a really bad job interview because God says, you got the job. And he's like, I don't want it. You don't want me. I'm not the right guy. So he says to him, he says, well, well who, who am I that you would want me for this? And he said, look, I've called you. You took off your shoes. That's all I asked you to do. Now everything changes. Well, he says, okay, well, well, well who are you? Because there's a lot of gods out there. Tell me which god you are so then when I go talk to the people who have rejected me, if you remember, who do I tell them sent me? And he said, tell them I am sent you. They'll know what you mean. And he says, but what if they don't listen? He said, I'll make them listen. So well, what if I stutter? I've got this problem with my speech. He goes, take your older brother. He's got a golden tongue. And finally, Moses says, listen, just send somebody else. Send somebody else. You can't possibly want me. And some of us are in that place. Some of us are in that place of being confronted with God and saying, you can't possibly want me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I'm capable of. Look at the things in my heart. You can't possibly want to be with me. You can't possibly want to hang around with me. If I walk into a church, the roof is going to collapse. Right? So far, so good. If I get close to God, it's just, it's just not going to make sense. Everything that's in me is anti that. It would be more it would be better for you, it would be more efficient for you to use someone else. It strikes me that the hero in the story feels like he's got nothing to offer, no reason to be there. God doesn't want him, doesn't want his past. That's what he believes. But the reality is, it's true for Moses, and it's true for us, is that God does not want us because we've earned it. God wants us because we're made for it. 
God does not want us because we've done anything to merit it. God doesn't want Moses to be the hero of the story because he's just that good. He's that capable. He doesn't want him for that. He wants him because he was made for it. It's his purpose. It's the, it's the thing that he was designed for. It's that thing that's deep within him that wants to explode, that God wants to grab a hold of and say, listen to me. I'm not asking you to get your stuff together. I'm not asking you to be perfect. I'm asking you to take off your shoes and let everything from here on be different. I'm asking you for one act. And God wants him, us to be near him more than we actually want to. We sometimes get addicted to our past and saying, well, you know, I'm not going to give this a try because of who I am, because of what I've done. And God, it says in the scriptures, is a jealous God. And he's a good kind of jealous God. He's the right kind of jealous, not the bad kind of jealous that we get. He's a holy jealous God. Scripture says in Deuteronomy, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He wants to redeem us and bring us away from the stuff that's turning our attention from him because we were made for it. The song we sang earlier said, yes, it's true that I was made for you. My story is about a person who though has done nothing to merit it, God has said, I choose you because you were made for this. You were made for me. And so Moses leaves this burning bush experience with the fire of God in his belly. After he takes his shoes off, everything changes. From then on, everything is different. And so he goes to his adopted grandfather, the Pharaoh, and he says, God says, let my people go. Now, can you imagine this? This is the guy who is telling God, send somebody else, get somebody else to do it. And now he's standing in the throne room with the fire in his belly saying, let God's people go. Maybe he's got the encouragement that Joshua had in chapter 1, and God says to him, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, don't be frightened, don't be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And so he goes to Pharaoh, and it takes ten plagues, the death of every firstborn child in Egypt, and one giant miracle where Moses and the people of Israel are standing at the Red Sea, and they're complaining because they're about to die. And God says, Moses, just... Just raise your arms. And Moses says, okay. And he raises his arms, and the sea splits, and they walk across on dry ground. And then as the Egyptians follow them, the waters close in around them. I just found out recently that one of the guys I was in a, small, in a youth group with became an anesthesiologist, which is good for him. The problem is, is that the only thing I remember about this guy is that he could belch the alphabet. That was his claim to fame. Is this really the guy you want to see as you're going under for surgery? Like, they tell you to count backwards, but all I'm hearing in my head is A, B, C, D through a coke-induced state. And I wonder if people were looking at Moses, all the people who had been redeemed by him, all the people who he had led out of slavery, if they're looking at him going, seriously, this guy? This guy raises his arms and an ocean splits? Certainly not. And so after they go through the ocean, they come to a place called Mount Sinai, the subject of our story. Mount Sinai is in a range of mountains called Horeb. And if you remember from the beginning of the story, this is where Moses first comes in contact with God. So everything now has come back full circle. And I just wonder, 
He comes back to this place where he'd seen the burning bush, this place where he had taken off his shoes and left his past behind, and everything had changed from then on. He had gone to do some incredible things to rescue the children of Israel. And I wonder if all the, after all the foot dragging and all the miracles and all the complaining and all the plagues, I wonder if he comes to this place with this sense of, wow, how far I've come. How far I've come. He's back to where he started. And then we see in Exodus 19, Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. We realize now that Moses is not the guy who you want to have this job, and yet he's the guy that God chooses. We realize that his past should have disqualified him, and yet it didn't. This is the place where he is going to do, introduce the people to a God who has just saved them from slavery, who has brought them back, And he's going to show them that God can even use murderers who were raised in the house of the enemy, who were rejected by their people, who had lived cut off from everyone else that they know and love. God can use those people to do incredible, massive, brilliant, beautiful things. And all of it because for one moment, Moses was willing to take off his shoes and let everything from then on be completely different. For one second, God got a hold of Moses and convinced him to indulge me in this. Even though you think your past is too big for me to handle, I'm just asking you to take off your shoes. Just take off your shoes. And so, as they're standing at this place, when Moses has come back around full circle, God says, I'm going to give you something to give to the people, and you tell them to obey it. And this is where we get the Ten Commandments. Now, we actually have video footage of the Ten Commandments being given. I don't know if you knew this. Yeah, let me, let me let you check that out. It's pretty cool. Lord, I shall give these laws unto thy people. Hear me. Oh, hear me. All pay heed. The Lord, the Lord Jehovah, has given unto you these 15... Ten! Ten Commandments! For all to obey. So you didn't know that, did you? Yeah, the other five were about texting while driving, so don't worry about those. We, we picked up on those later. So it's amazingly humorous that this is the moment where God says, I want you to take these laws and give them to the people, not because I want to keep control of them, but because I want to show them who they need to become. And so Moses takes these laws, and he's getting ready to give them to him. And I wonder if he read them and thought about it, and he said, Wait a minute, one of the first ones here is thou shalt not kill. Um, question, uh, I can't tell them not to do that, because I did that. And I know that there are people, I know that there are people who are feeling and thinking, I'd love to get involved in this God thing, I'd love to give my life to him, but you know what, I'm, I'm going to be a hypocrite. I can't do all of that stuff. I can't keep all of those laws. I'm not a good person. Do you realize my past tells me that I am not going to be good at this? I am going to fail. I am going to struggle. But you know, the reality is that's an accurate description of Moses. If being a hypocrite means that you struggle, then there's not a person in this room who is not a hypocrite. 
If being a hypocrite means that you fail and sometimes you struggle to do the things that God is calling us to do, then every person in this room is a hypocrite. The reality is this word hypocrite came from the Greek theater, and it was used for a person playing a role, wearing a mask, and playing a character. Now, even in the best of movies, even in the Johnny Cash movie from a few years ago, nobody believed that that was actually Johnny Cash, right? We knew it was Joaquin Phoenix, even though he did a great job. We knew that it wasn't technically actually Johnny Cash. So it was never a perfect match. So a hypocrite says, I've always been good. I've never struggled. I've only lived here in Chicago for uh, two years. But I have to tell you, I think I've been converted. I think I'm becoming a Blackhawks fan. Um, it was a good time for me to move, you know? So sooner or later, I'm going to get baptized in melted ice from the United Center. It's going to be awesome. And it's, and it's been hard, too, because I live in a family of Pittsburgh Penguins fans. And so, I, yeah, yeah, pray for me. And so when they won the cup last year, I tried to keep my joy down. I just, yay. Because I didn't want to be that guy. Like, I just got here, and I'm jumping on the wagon, right? Oh, I've been with you through the whole hard times and all the difficult stuff, and can't, we've won something great together, right? We, I'm on the team, and I'm with you on this. That's called jumping on the bandwagon, and, and there's not much difference between the bandwagon and hypocrisy. Listen, if you are keeping Jesus at arm's length because you feel like you will be a hypocrite because you will fail and you will struggle, that's not being a hypocrite. That's being human, Being a hypocrite says that I'm incapable of struggle. I'm not going to mess up. I'm not going to fail. Listen, some of the greatest people in the Bible failed. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 7. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. What he's saying is, I didn't get really good at sinning until I knew what sin was. Until there was a cookie in that cookie jar, and I knew there was a cookie in that cookie jar. I didn't want it, but now that I know it's there, I definitely want it. The closer we get to God, the more we'll realize the stuff that we're capable of doing wrong in. So we're going to struggle. Don't let that separate you. Moses didn't let it separate him. And the reality is we don't have to worry about that because of Jesus. Jesus comes and says, don't think that I have come. I've not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus says, I'm going to help you out with this whole hypocrisy thing by keeping the whole law completely myself. Then I can help you get your act together. Jesus today is saying to all of us, look, I'm not asking you to try and be perfect. I'm not asking you to get it all together. I'm not asking you to get your past dealt with. I'm not asking you to be different. I'm asking you just to take off your shoes, just in Indulge me for a moment and make believe that I can change everything from here on. I'm not asking you to be a perfect person. I'm not asking you. And, you're, and we're all saying in our hearts, look, you don't know what I'm capable of. You don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. And Jesus is saying, take off your shoes. We'll deal with that. I want you to be something more than you are. So would you indulge me for a moment? Take off your shoes. Some of us are here and we've been, God has put something on us to do, something big. Maybe it's not as big as leading the entire nation of Israel out of slavery, but there's something God has said, I have this for you to do, and we've been stalling and waiting because we're saying we may fail at it. We may not get it right. We may not do it well. And Jesus is saying, indulge me for just a moment. And just, 
Just take off your shoes and see that I won't give you the courage that you need. See that I won't give you the strength and the ability and the power to do what I've asked you to do. All I'm asking for you is to take off your shoes. Listen, we're all hypocrites and amateurs in comparison to Jesus. But when we admit that, we are entering into how good this God thing can truly be. We're all, we can't be hypocrites if we're honest with God about where we fail. And then letting him help us get our acts together. Mount Sinai says... That faith is not about sin management. Faith is about sin exposure. It's about revealing our places where we fail to God, letting the light of his grace shine on it so that he can say, listen, with that, just take it off, and everything from now on will be different. Don't try harder. Just, just take off your shoes. Everything will be different from here on. Mount Sinai means that God will take you as you are. Chuck Colson is one of the strongest voices in Christianity right now. But Chuck Colson was involved in one of the worst government cover-ups ever that we know of in the Nixon administration. And that's part of his past. That's part of his story. But he has set that behind and used it. And God has said, look, Chuck, take off your shoes. Put that stuff behind you. I'm going to do amazing things in you going forward. Everything will be different from here on. And he's become an incredible voice in Christianity. Jesus was confronted with a woman who had been caught in adultery. And there were all kinds of people there ready to condemn her for her past. Ready to throw stones at her and kill her for what she had done. And Jesus dismisses them. And it's a wonderful story in John chapter 8. But at the end he says, where's, um, where's everybody that wanted to kill you? Where'd they go? And she said, I, I don't know. They're gone. I guess I'm not dying today. And he said, you're not dying today, so do me a favor. Take off your shoes. Let everything from now on be different. It's this amazing moment where we realize that God doesn't deal with us the way that we deserve to be dealt with, the way that our past seemed to merit it. Moses deserved to walk back to Egypt, into the throne room of Pharaoh, and be condemned to death for what he did. But Psalm 103 says, He doesn't repay us. God doesn't deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Your past does not disqualify you. Your past does not define you. But God is not about who you have been, but who you can be. And so all he's asking is, will you take off your shoes? Mount Sinai means that God will make you into the person you were meant to be. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Moses can do what he does because he takes off his shoes, he surrenders his past, he surrenders his addiction to his failures, and enters into this new life that God had prepared for him, these works. He realizes that this is not my project, and if it is my project, I'm going to mess it up because that's what I do. He enters into the enormous and beautiful and strong story that God is wanting to write with his life. Listen, if you've been keeping Jesus at arm's length because of what your past says about you, this is your burning bush moment. Indulge him for just a moment and take off your shoes and let everything from now on be different. Leave that past behind so that God can show you who you were meant to be. If you've been stalling on something that God has asked you to do, a person, a conversation, a ministry that God has called you to and put it within your heart to do, and you're saying, oh, I don't know if I can, I don't know if I'm the right person, listen, just for a moment, 
Take off your shoes. And let God give you the strength to keep going and to do what you need to do. I would love to see a world full of people ripping off their shoes and violently pursuing the way of God. Saying, my past will not define me. My past will not enslave me. I am coming out of Egypt and into this new life that God has for me. It doesn't matter what I've done. I've just been called to take off my shoes and let everything be different from there on. God wants to do this to save you. God wants to do this to transform you. But God also wants to do this so that you and I these broken, bedraggled, struggling ragamuffins can take off our shoes and transform the world. There's a story of a man who is one of our Parkview folks. It's a story about taking off shoes. And I want to introduce you to that story this morning. This is the story of Mike. I had a good upbringing. Um, you know, went to school and all that. You know, good family life. Um, but it lacked excitement for me. I started hanging around, you know, with a different crowd than the neighborhood guys, really, and led me to some things and eventually my crime. Uh, and uh, it put me in the prison system. And I was a teenager. My life uh, really changed then. Once I got in, I was in fights, I was in gang wars. My rank quickly evolved from a soldier to a shot caller to sitting on the council to eventually running the joints. God got my attention, um, so to speak, when I was sentenced to a year in the hole. Uh, yeah, they have a, another prison in a prison. And this prison, you're totally isolated. And uh, when I was in there, I had a lot of free time to think. You have nothing in there. You're in a, in a cage, and you're by yourself, and you're not going anywhere. You're not even going outside that cage, but for one hour, for once a week. And then they put you in another cage outside so you can get some sun. It's called a dog cage. And you're let out there on a leash that's strapped to your back, and you're put in this cage, and, and you're locked in there for an hour, and then you come back in, and you're put back in your, your cage inside, and you're isolated once again. You can run through thoughts and, and the past and all this, but that even gets old because you're running the same dreams and ideas over and over. After about seven months, you know, I, I thought there has to be some more to life than this, this. And I found myself finally falling on my knees and praying to God. I felt something within me. And from that seventh month until the day I got out of the hole, I prayed. I prayed and I felt good. God changed me. He started his work. He, he started. I was a little seed and he was watering me and I started to grow. And by the time I left those walls, I was a little plant. And I started reading the Bible in my spare time behind my door and starting to learn a little more. But when I got out, God started putting his armor on me. He started using me in ways. We came up with a program. God did have a plan for me. My soul wasn't going to be lost in there. I mean, I had hits placed on me in there. I've been stabbed in there. I've been in gang wars in there. And I shouldn't have lived through some of them. And I'll be honest with you, 
There was an angel on my shoulder. God did not want me to be taken that way or in there. He had another purpose for me. I'm 100%, 100% God-driven now. I mean, I wake up in the morning and I pray. I give 10% of my check. I don't make a lot of money. He's blessed me in so many different ways. How am I going to give back? Uh, me and two other people. One was incarcerated and the other one's a businessman. We want to help people coming out. Our business is to train these people. We've already talked to uh, the Illinois Department of Corrections as well as another state right now. And both of them are interested in a program and are putting the funds up. Uh, and that's where I think God is sending me. That and also talking to some of the youth. I've already talked at Rush University uh, to some youth uh, about gang intervention, things like that. If my choice when I was in that hole wasn't, was like the choice I made when I was growing up, I'd either be back in prison or I'd be doing something illegal out here. Or I'd have such hatred in me because of having a tough time after being in prison and here, I wouldn't be a good person to be around. God opened that door for me. He was knocking there. And I wanted to come in. I made that choice. It changed my life. I'm going to have the servers um, get in place for communion right now. Listen, I, I don't know what you came in with. I don't know what's on your heart. And I don't know what this message has conveyed to you. But I know there are people in this room who are struggling to keep God at arm's length. And, and God is saying, listen, you need to do something with my son. You need to do something with this Jesus. Whether it's reject him or accept him or whatever. You, it's time that you did something with him. And there's this big and beautiful life that I've got for you. And I, and I want you to have it. But it's time to make that decision. And maybe this moment right now is a burning bush moment. Where you need to make a decision to say, listen, I, I want my life to belong to Jesus. I want to jump in the waters. I want to get baptized. I want to clean off all this stuff. The scripture says that though our sins be as scarlet... God will wash them white as snow. Maybe that's the place where you are. Maybe God has laid something on your heart to do. Maybe an act of forgiveness or an act of reconciliation or a confrontation or a conversation that you need to have. Maybe this is the burning bush moment for you where God is saying, what are you going to do with this? We've been talking about it for a while. What are you going to do with this thing that I've asked you to do? If that's you, then maybe this is your burning bush moment where you simply say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to take off my shoes and I'm going to go in the courage that you're going to help me to do this. So as we prepare for communion, I'm going to ask you to do something very simple. I'm going to pray before we pass the trays. And during this prayer, if, if this is your burning bush moment for either of those reasons or for another reason that God's put on your heart, would you do something right where you are? Just slip your shoes off. While I'm praying, just slip off your shoes as a sign to you, as a sign to those around you, saying, look, this is a moment that I'm going to decide. My past does not define me. It will not determine what I can do in the future. I am going to give my life to doing what God has asked me to do. So I'm going to pray. You can slip your shoes off while we're praying, and then we'll take communion together. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you call us with strength and power that you call us into a beautiful life of hope and forgiveness and truth. 
You call us, God, to be the people that you have designed us and made us to be, that yes, it is true that we are made for you. And I pray for my friends who are in this room right now who need to slip off their shoes and say, my past is my past, and I'm turning my life over to God, and I'm going to walk forward with him, and everything will be different from here on. I pray, God, that you give them the strength right now to slip off their shoes and say that to you. That you give them the strength to to be baptized and to wash off the old and walk into the new. God, I pray for my friends in this room who are struggling with something that God has, that you've asked them to do, Father. I pray you would give them the courage to slip off their shoes and say, I'm going in strength and courage that the next thing that I do is going to be something that God is driving. Father, I pray that as we take these elements, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood, that you remind us that because of you, we can take off our shoes. Because of you, there is grace or forgiveness where we can live and dwell and become new people, become changed people. Father, all these things we pray in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.